You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Good evening. Uh, my name is Dharmendra Kanani. I'm Director of Strategy with Friends of Europe and I'm your moderator for this Café Crossfire on innovation in the energy transition. We have till quarter past seven uh, with a kick-off with some speakers who c represent government, industry and a start-up, just to get our juices flowing in terms of the debate, in terms of what we need to think about. At Friends of Europe, I suppose uh, our, our aim and our intention is really to be able to help you and us connect the dots of the debate, um, debate the issues uh, that we need to in this particular context. And hopefully by the end, by quarter past seven, I hope that you're left with uh, a sense of the change that we need to make in terms of our thinking, our policy and our practice. So Connect Debate Change is what we're about uh, at Friends of Europe and this is an event that helps us uh, do that also. But before I go into uh, framing our conversation, I have a minor, tiny request. I know we all hate filling in surveys. We all do. And, you know, SurveyMonkey's great and it's great, it's online. But we have a, a small request for you. I hope that you all have a copy of this page of A4. It's a tiny questionnaire, only five questions. And the only thing I can plead with you is that actually we all believe in the importance of connecting good, high-quality research with policymaking and practice. So this is part of our contribution and your contribution to helping that happen. We're part of a Horizon 2020 program called SHAPE, SHAPE Energy. Um, it's about making a better link between policy, that, uh, research that's being developed and linking that to practice and policy development. And this is an opportunity for you to engage with us in that and help us with our partners. As a the platform for Shape Energy is huge uh, with a multitude of partners across Europe. And this is one small way of us being able to just understand your relationship to research and how you use it and how much more Shape might be able to do to help you and us in this audience, but also the wider community across Europe to really make the best of research, but also to help them think about the type of research you think you need to be able to do your job more effectively. So if you can spend, just literally it will take five minutes, only five questions, mostly tick box, and if you can hand them in or do them at the end, but our, our, my colleagues will be outside to collect them from you. We don't have a prize. Um, there are no sweeties, no nothing. Just your goodwill uh, to make this happen. So on that note, I will just leave that with you, having pleaded with you to, to fulfill that particular request. Now turning to the agenda at heart, energy transition, uh, we know about, we know what the stakes are. Um, we've had the debate uh, significantly, and we know that at a global level, there's a major, major conversation about 2% and getting below 2%. We all understand what the stakes are, both in terms of the money that we need to be able to invest to get there, the ability of governments um, to really invest in R&D to create the kind of clean energy tech community that we need to be able to get us there. But also, there's issues around pricing and how the markets play with our transition to a new kind of energy that will make us more sustainable, low carbon, and save the planet. So those are kind of the, the big picture issues and narrative that we need to grapple with. And actually, uh, time is urgent. Um, our ability to move in that direction has been... Um, riddled with a number of complexities. This year alone, we've seen some dilemmas, dichotomies, and contradictions. 
the Trump election, the US moving out of the Paris Agreement, yet only uh, uh, you know, last month we had Mission Innovation Meet, uh, a group of countries, ministers, others coming together, and we'll hear a little bit more about that, actually uh, redoubling their efforts, at least in words, but let's see what happens in practice. But that sets a wider context, let alone what's happening in Europe in terms of, we you know... <clears throat> the kind of outcomes of recent elections. But I suppose what we can hold on to, to a certain extent, is the, the commitment appears to be uh, 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 tangible uh, and the commitment appears to be real. And I think this kind of conversation helps us think through what we need to do to get there and the kind of questions and challenges we need to be able to respond to and promote more, more effectively. As I said, we've got three speakers. I'm not going to give you a bio on each of our speakers. You've got that in the, in the document here. But I'm going to start off with Patrick Child and give you a kind of, ask him to give a, a commission perspective. He's not going to speak in, on behalf of the commission in its entirety, but clearly from his perspective, having uh, responsibility for a significant R&D budget, but also having recently been at the Mission Innovation event in, in China. And perhaps you can say a little bit about what your impressions were, but to start with uh, what your sense is about where we are now and in your, in your kind of assessment of whether we're going to make the distance and what, what's required to actually go the distance in the next five to ten years if we're really going to tackle this agenda effectively. Patrick, over to you. Um, thanks very much, and uh, thanks to Friends of Europe for inviting us to this and organising this uh, very timely and, and important discussion. Um, I think on your first question, I mean, all I'll say is that the, the challenge is huge, um, that uh, uh, we don't yet know what the technologies are that are going to help us meet our objectives under the Paris Agreement, which is why I think uh, innovation and this discussion on innovation in clean energy is so important, uh, but that our political resolve is extremely strong. Uh, and I think that perhaps brings me to the second point, which is, uh, you know, how do we all feel today following the uh, announcement by President Trump concerning the U.S. commitment to Paris? Um, obviously, we're all very disappointed by the announcement. Um, uh, but, uh, and we were fearful that the sort of first international outing um, uh, on clean energy, which was these meetings in, in Beijing uh, last week, uh, on Mission Innovation, which is the group of countries committed to uh, increasing investment into clean energy research, as well as the Clean Energy Ministerial, which is the established forum uh, where countries work together on deploying existing clean energy technologies. We were fearful that this meeting would be overshadowed and rather sort of gloomy uh, as we all um, drew the consequences, conclusions of the American announcement uh, and indeed, we worried that there would be some signs of uh, a decline in resolve or sort of less enthusiasm uh, from some partners, um, given the American announcement. Uh, and so it was a great relief that that wasn't um, the case. I mean, I was very uh, privileged to be in the delegation of the commission led by Vice President Sefcovic, um, uh, who played a very central part in the, in the whole meeting. Um, but the message that we heard from all participants was that uh, countries remained fully committed to delivering on the objectives of Paris, uh, and in particular in terms of the objectives of mission innovation, very determined to meet their commitment to double investment, public investment in clean energy technologies in the next five years. Um, and even Secretary Perry, uh, representing the U.S., who uh, came to the meeting, already a good signal in itself, 
um, was clear, of course, you know, his uh, reflecting what the U.S. had said, but also clear in saying that he remained uh, very committed to innovation uh, and very committed to international cooperation. He talked uh, perhaps more about things like carbon capture and storage, uh, nuclear energy, uh, a little bit less about uh, sort of innovation in, in future renewables, although he was also quite convincing in his presentation on uh, the work that he'd done as governor of Texas uh, in rolling out renewables, in particular wind, in that state. Um, and so, in general, the mood in Beijing was extremely optimistic uh, and forward-looking, and I think that's, that's good news uh, for all of us. I think what was also very clear in the meetings was that um, uh, increasingly the European Union uh, will be expected to uh, continue to take a lead in the global debate on climate change uh, and that specifically on mission innovation and the clean energy ministerial, uh, we confirmed our commitment to host the meetings next year, which will be held in, in uh, Sweden and Denmark, uh, in cooperation with the Nordic Council countries. Um, and we were also able to sort of build some bridges with the Canadians who will be hosting the meeting in the following year. And I think that one thing that uh, particularly emerged from our discussions, and I know it's something that the Commission uh, takes extremely seriously, is that engagement with the private sector is going to be a very central theme, uh, both of what we do internationally, but also what we do internally, domestically, in, in the European Union. Um, and it's probably, and it's good, therefore, we've got the cross-section of speakers today, it's probably um, the biggest challenge that we face. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the preparations for, for next year, as I say, we'll be working with the, with the other host countries. Um, one of the things that I, I think we'll try and do in, in Europe is something that was announced in the winter package on the Energy Union, which was the... Uh, it's organized a, a forum on, on clean energy competitiveness, um, which I hope will help us sort of uh, establish some principles, ideas at a European level that we can then feed into the um, international debate. Of course, the European Union's policy in this area is also quite well developed. Um, and for those of you who perhaps need reminding, uh, as part of the Energy Union Winter Package last um, November, we had a, a specific communication um, under the authority of Commissioner Moidash, which was about accelerating the pace of clean energy innovation, um, which for the first time you know, went beyond what perhaps DG Research and Innovation's traditional documents of just telling people what we're going to spend our money on, um, but rather tried to frame the whole debate about the, the ecosystem surrounding clean energy innovation, starting with the sort of regulatory environment, the, the competition, pricing of um, uh, both fossil fuels, renewables, and you know, new technologies, um, as well as trying to give some sort of sense of direction in terms of the sorts of technologies that we believe uh, need to be part of the future, while avoiding being too prescriptive in ways which would perhaps, you know, sort of tie our hands and, and not work in terms of, you know, the necessary market response and, and response by companies. So I hope that in our discussion a little bit later on we can get into some of the detail of that, but the sort of themes that we are looking at, um, uh, you know, storage, energy stories and batteries, and I think batteries will be an increasingly um, important uh, 
dimension of our discussions going forward, and one where, if we're frank, the European Union is not um, yet at the forefront of the um, technological uh, discussion and where we need to think about how we can do that. Um, heating and cooling in buildings, I mean, a huge part of our energy consumption um, and where you know, the building stock in the European Union, like other parts of the world, uh, needs massive investment. The next generation of renewables um, and the whole question of electromobility. So those are some of the themes that, that we <coughs> believe that we should be working on uh, both through our own uh, EU-funded programs, but we also hope that by doing that and sending a, a, a sense of direction consistent with the established uh, strategic energy technology plan, the SET plan, um, that we will be able to uh, uh, establish a very clear European or consolidate a very clear European lead in this important debate. Thank you very much. Patrick, thank you. If I, if I may, um, slight, it's not intended to be provocative at all, I promise you. Um, if you think about what we need to do to get to the Paris Agreement, the objectives, there's a series of phases of development. EU, as a, one of the largest trading blocs in the world, has been able to demonstrate one really important thing, which is that um, GDP and action on climate change is, doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. We've seen that. You've actually, every, every bit of infrastructure that's been put into place potentially demonstrates that. I suppose my question is, given the politics that we're living through at the moment, and I know you can't comment on politics per se, but given your role, are you optimistic? Do you remain optimistic in this next phase? Because we've done the infrastructure. We've actually persuaded people of the fact that GDP doesn't have to be exclusive of uh, a climate change action. But given where we are now, how confident are you that we'll make the next phase of transition? Rather than a yes or no. Obviously. Well, I'm, I'm uh, hugely optimistic because I think that, um, as you rightly say, that there are huge commercial opportunities of investing in clean energy technologies. We have seen it in sectors like wind and PV. Um, you know, we are seeing also uh, our lead in some of these sectors eroded, um, but that we in the European Union have uh, a huge wealth of uh, research and innovation potential. Um, and I believe that uh, with the sustained political support that we're seeing for this agenda, uh, we have uh, you know, a strong base to build on. Uh, that's not to say that you know, we, we can't, don't need to take account of global competition. Um, the Chinese... Um, you know, by hosting this meeting, but also in what they're having to do domestically in order to rise to the challenges of their own environmental difficulties of the last years um, are certainly going to give us a strong run for our money. Um, and what I okay. see coming out of the United States is that even if the administration at the sort of you know, central level is taking this, um, well, let's say, ambiguous position on the Paris Agreement, uh, that when you look down into the business community or into the regions and in the cities, um, you know, one of the initiatives that uh, Vice President Sefcovic very much involved in in the Global Conference of Mayors, um, uh, not just in the United States but, but elsewhere as well, uh, shows that there is a, you know, a very significant mobilization and many people will be uh, chasing to make, get their share of this commercial opportunity. Okay. But I All think right. Europe's well-placed. Okay, thank you. Um, you made the point, and it's part of this agenda, is that business competitiveness is going to be key. R&D in innovation is going to be key, but also business competitiveness is going to be key, and how industry responds is going to be absolutely essential in terms of setting the pace and also 
behaving like a leader in this space. So on that note, Caroline, Caroline Hilliger from Engie, um, a significant player in the field. Um, you're seen as a bit of an industry leader in this space. What I'd like you to do is, rather than talk about the nuts and bolts, think about the future and what you think the energy world of tomorrow will look like. And then, after you've painted that picture, how are you trying to get there? And how will you get there? Okay. Do you hear me or not? They hear you. Just talking it? Okay, it's perfect. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, maybe before looking to the, to the future, I want to take a picture, an experience of the past. Imagine the street of New York in 1900. It's full of horse carriage, and they have a huge problem, very huge. It's not about CO2, it's not about environment, it's about horse manure. They don't know what to do with it, it's terrible. 13 years later, one tree, so in 1913, same street of New York, full of internal combustion engine. So it means that in 13 years, we already realized a huge challenge, disruption. So the century-long transportation by horse has been now transformed in internal combustion engine. Just to let you know, it's possible, it's going very fast, and that's what we are experiencing now in the energy sector. Looking forward, yes, but already looking at today, because for us and for Engie, it's already ongoing. And we have five tsunamis in the energy sector that are or coming or already there or will come. First of all, energy, renewable energy that is almost uh, quasi-infinite, quasi-free, at least at zero marginal cost with the renewable energy, but intermittent. Second of all, storage with massively decreasing cost, improvement in technologies, it will help solve the intermittency problem of number one. Number three, digital big data sensors every day increasing and transforming homes, buildings, even cars into an entire part of the energy system and allowing also to optimize the system. Fourth element, electric mobility. It's amazing how fast it's taking up. We have now China that has announced in its next five-year plan 20, million, uh, 20 billion cars uh, within the five years. And fifth element, we have green hydrogen, which is actually a way to store, to transport green energy over long distance and over long periods. If we take those five elements and we see every day announcement in the press on the fact that it's not tomorrow, it's already today, it's starting. And that's our strong belief. And that's why at Engie, we believe in a full 3D world which is decarbonized, digital and decentralized. And our new, new strategy is to go for that and to make business out of it. And I was uh, pleasantly hearing a lot of topics, and we are trying to make it work. We have now uh, transformed our strategy, our organization also towards that. And um, we have three key focus. 
first of all, low CO2 production, second of all, global networks, and third of all, customer solution. Is it small customer like you and me? Is it bigger industrial customer? But also territories, cities, different uh, area. How do we do that? It's a huge challenge because, you know, we had a, a massive share of our production that was about coal. And so we are divesting from these coal activities, even if it's still, um, uh, it's, it's still a competitive activity, but we are divesting it. And with the money we divest, we reinvest, we redevelop new activities. Um, I was hearing about Eat and Coal Network yesterday. We... Uh, announced a massive investment around uh, seven, 700 million uh, into a coal network tabreed in the Emirates. That's a new business we want to develop. Electric mobility, we have uh, acquired the European leader of um, electric uh, mobility, which is installing, which is EV box installing um, charging station. We are also um, Investing in some other type of, um, of, I'm not going to say institution or foundation, but um, the Solar Impulse Foundation that was founded by Bertrand Picard, and we have last week announced an investment. Because according to us, it's true, a lot of technology still needs to mature, but a lot of technologies already exist, are already competitive. And we don't know about it. People don't know about it. And through this foundation, we want to make it known to everyone, so that everyone can benefit from that. Because one of our key, um, key targets is also to give access to energy to everyone in the world. We have between one, billion, one and two billion people on Earth who don't have access to energy. And with those cheap uh, solutions, small solutions, we can give them uh, access to energy. And maybe last but not least, um, we are also collaborating with, uh, with a lot of startups supporting also development of some technologies like Silfen, we are going to talk about uh, in a few uh, minutes, with whom we have a collaboration and strong collaboration. Thank you. So, really, you're going to become the energy equivalent of Amazon with all that acc accumulation of different bits of business that you can bring to the doorstep and deal with the hardwiring at the back. But it's an interesting, interesting model, but it's good to hear, I mean, what you're saying in terms of the kind of the acquisitions you're, you're obviously engaged in and also the business transformation that will require. But I'm sure there'll be questions about what that means uh, in terms of your, your 3D future, which I quite liked. But I think there's questions about how, how that is made to happen because it will require a level of global connectedness and a market playing in your favour or not, but we can come to that in a moment because the market will have to play in a different way. Um, last but not least, Caroline Rosin. Um, I'm going to turn to you. Um, you're kind of, you know that, that, that poster in America that we need you. It's almost as if the climate change agenda needs you and, and more people like you, actually, because actually we need inventiveness, entrepreneurialism and an ability to work in collaboration with others to spot niche in the market, but also see the world differently to most of us here. Actually say, actually, here's a solution that others don't think about. And here's something that actually needs and deserves attention. But the challenges are how you bring that to market and scale. So I want, to sh I want you to share with us you know, the, you know, your journey, your experience of coming up with something. And obviously now at the stage where you're proofing it and then need to take it to market to a certain extent, obviously you'd be collaborating with Engie. But really keen to hear from your perspective as a clean tech startup entrepreneur, 
the challenges for you and what you'd like to say to people who are here who want to you know, do more of and have more of people like you in our, in our world. Over to you. I think that uh, yeah, the first challenge that startup needs to, to overcome uh, is to be resilient. Um, because you know that uh, being a startup means that you are going through ups and downs every day. You can have a very good news in the morning and a very bad news just the afternoon. So you have to, yeah, to keep going, to keep moving forward, uh, no matter what happens. Um, and so the, uh, because... We believe in what we do. Um, we are working days, nights, our holidays, so we have to believe in what we do. But the problem is that uh, when you are starting, uh, nobody is believing in what you do. So communication is key. You, we, we just have, we had learned this uh, through the hard way um, that we, we need to, um, to explain to everybody how, how our product was working, what was the benefit for, from this product, what we were doing. Um, and so actually I think this was working because uh, thanks from, uh, from the, for, for, for me for being here, um, I think that we, our communication is now uh, taking a step, uh, a, a step uh, forward. Um, and uh, about uh, how we bring uh, technology into a market, uh, actually, it's, we don't bring a technology to a market. You can have some industrial but very close partnerships that can buy a technology. Uh, but the way to make it to the market is to transform a technology into a product. Um, and so this is what we, what we did, actually. To, we, we call it our, our product, we call it the Smart Energy Hub, uh, which is a an, an, uh, an energy hub that can manage uh, energy, uh, that can store energy, and being able to, 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 to give it to consumer when needed. Um, so this is um, because when, when you want uh, to... to you, ca you cannot sell only hardware things, uh, only hardware systems. You have to, to, to mix it with software as well, because no, uh, that's for the moment, nothing is selling without uh, the software tools. You cannot sell any hardware system without the piloting strategies. Uh, so this is what we did, actually, to have the hardware technology. So this is uh, the, the innovation, uh, which is a fuel, uh, electrolysis and fuel cell, which is a reversible system. And we had its software tools in order to be able to manage it really properly. Um, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, the, the same thing is ready to, yeah, to, to, to create a product and to communicate well about it. And in terms of the kind of support you've had around you, so mm. any comment about, you know, if people are here to learn about how do, how do you help people like you to really flourish and be nurtured, from your experience just now, mm. at, at this age, what are the lessons you'd say to policymakers or companies or delegations that are here about if they were to spot something, what do they need to do to make this effective, to actually bring it more effectively to market <laughs> and to nurture your, your ideas? Yeah, actually this is fun. Um, because um, the problem as being a startup is resources. Uh, you cannot be, be in, uh, every in every part, every country in the world in order to just develop your technology. Uh, so there is lots of helps for startups to be in funds. Uh, we can start with seeds fundings. Um, but the problem is that with seed funding, it's only national. So uh, we have met with funds that were uh, 
uh, in Germany, that were in Finland, uh, but they are always asking us to develop local activities in their country. So can you imagine when you start, you are two or four peoples and you have to work in all of European countries in order to, to get funded? Um, so I think, yeah, if I have something to, to ask from the European Commission, is, uh, it will be... Um, An horizontal pot of money that cuts across Europe without no. dealing with all the detail of member states. Mmm, yes. <laughs> don't we all want that? And you do that, don't you, you say? Yeah, yeah okay. but actually it will be to, um, to focus on the two or four funds that there were, um, uh, seed funds that there, that there are in each country. We know in France where there is two, two seed funds, maybe three or four, but really no more. And just to, to have a European funds just specialized into these funds for, for helping these funds uh, just invest in, uh, in startup company. Because um, it's really easy to invest in software company because there is not uh, infrastructure, infrastructure costs. Uh, but, with, um, but with hardware company, uh, it's, there is lots of infrastructure costs, lots of manufacturing costs, so it means really expensive prototype, really expensive manufacturing line. And uh, this, uh, this means that this, 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 this explains why, uh, why SID's investments are quite, of, quite scary to invest in such a startup. And so that's why uh, if there is some help uh, from Europe uh, to just to secure this kind of investment, I think it will be much easier to a startup to, to make this first investment world. world. Okay. Can, before I open it up to the audience, Patrick, do you want to say something about that? Because people are probably scratching their heads saying, well, hello, that's what yeah. you do, isn't it? Uh, no, indeed. I mean, it's, it's good to have your, your experience, and I'm, I'm sure you're right. I mean, what we see is that there is you know, basically no shortage of, of capital in Europe, um, but the sort of appetite for risk of normal financial institutions isn't great for companies like yours. Um, and that's why we do actually have a mind-boggling array, and maybe that's the problem, a mind-boggling array of different financing instruments uh, specifically to uh, sort of pick up on good innovative ideas and help uh, people like you get them into marketable products, ranging from, you know, sort of support for small and medium-sized enterprises, Inofin, um, uh, to uh, a new new initiative that, that uh, Commissioner Moidash is leading at the moment to sort of create a fund of funds for venture capital for innovation in the European Union and, and a new idea for a European um, Innovation Council, so something which you know, we're trying to develop also for the next uh, financial perspectives, which is much more bottom-up funding for small companies, startups, which have good ideas um, uh, and, and if anything, you know, I think what we, we in the institutions are sort of thinking about is, well, you know, we've got so many different instruments. We've also got you know, uh, the um, – sorry, I've got several um, colleagues here whose projects need to be mentioned. Um, uh, there's also I can the, see them um, all writing, the furiously for, saying, Patrick, uh, will you mention my one, please? <laughs> Uh, the the um, the uh, FC the European Fund for Strategic Investments will be very much uh, led by um, Vice President Katainen um, under the authority of uh, President Juncker, of course. Um, so we've got a range of instruments targeted at different sort of stages of development of com companies. Um, and for the future, we need to think about maybe you know, how we can make them 
more accessible, more user-friendly, and perhaps you know, sort of streamlined in a in a way which would would help. Patrick, uh, but there's no shortage of, of, of okay. things out there. Can I kind of come in left left side here for a minute? Because absolutely, you're right. And it's kind of the the classic thing that you know, we are working across Europe. You do have funds. You're sitting there at the centre and saying, actually, this is available, but people just don't know it. And you, but you need to have some sort of conduit or ca capacity to link through member states and others. And that's a kind of an age-old dilemma. The biggest issue, from my experience, is about the fact that people's perceptive, perception... So as a funder previously, I tried to introduce seed capital, which was uh, able to take high risk. And as a public funder, I had government all over me saying, no, you can't have that, you know, failure is, is a no-no. And one of the things that entrepreneurs need in seed capital is a, and a form of patience towards risk. Do you feel that you kind of have that capacity? And I want to turn to you as well, because actually the private sector is quite key to this in terms of being able to offer the space to venture, but also to fall, and then to be picked up again and therefore continue. And make a decision, actually, this isn't going to work, it's not going to go to market, but actually we're prepared to take a risk for you to be able to stand, walk, and then run into the marketplace. Difficult question, I know. So do you want to take that first, Patrick? What's your sense of the level of tolerance of risk in some of the funding you've made available? I see your colleagues looking at you saying, what is he going to say? Um, it's something where I guess we can always do better. Hmm? I mean, if you look at some the successful, I mean, for example, the um, ARPA-E scheme in the United States linked to the um, Department of Energy, um, I mean, it's slightly under threat at the moment following the change of administration, unfortunately, um, but uh, a very agile institution uh, with a lot of autonomy to recruit really top people um, with a lot of experience on innovation who then have a lot of freedom to manage money uh, and to channel that money into um, uh, you know, promising ideas, but also to turn off the tap if the promising ideas turn out to be a little bit less mm. successful and then redirect it in another way. Now, we do have similar things to that. Um, we have the... Um, uh, no, I'm going to get this wrong, but the kicks attached to the EIT, and in particular the um, you know, energy kick, which... Um, does a lot of similar things. It tries to sort of take a bit more ownership, working alongside um, sort of startup companies with seed capital, with with expertise, um, and 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 support along the way. But again, it may be that you know the okay. you know, that it isn't widely known enough. Uh, but but look, talking again about the the um, the European Innovation Council, this new idea we're working on for the future. Uh, the idea is very much to try and. Uh, uh, take on more of the risk um, using public funds. And, and yes, that will expose us probably politically to defend those decisions. And, and, and that's always the difficulty. I mean, mm. the European um, financial model is not one which, um, in which uh, risk-taking and um, uh, sort of, you know, has, has always been encouraged. Um, but, uh... Caroline, from the private sector, are you more risk-taking? For seed capital? We have, uh, in, uh, since two years, a venture fund uh, in which uh, we invest in startups. And uh, it's an eternal uh, debate. Uh, first of all, the, f the focus was on uh, very mature startups having already a product and a go to market because, of course, we need to be competitive in, if we want Indeed. to be able to, set it, to, to sell it, etc. But on the other hand, we have also this, this vision of the things that will happen. We strongly believe in, in some technologies and that they need support. So we want to go for co-creation. 
uh, together with customers, uh, together with, with startups, uh, also with some, uh, some public funds, so that we engage with more type of resources so that we can share the, the risk. Uh, one key question is also the focus. Do we want to, f to focus into a specific area to be able to put more means, take maybe more risk, and, and, and be able to, to engage more? Uh, and I must admit it's a, a daily uh, internal debate within our company. Um, we have recently also uh, created um, a new entity on top of the, the business unit, uh, which is uh, focusing on uh, disrupt disruptive innovation. Mm. Uh, it's added at the really top of the company because most of the things we propose is cannibalizing mm -hmm. all our activities. And so it's very difficult to get it true, but we get it true. And one of the best examples is, for example, the electric mobility stuff because we have also inside the company gas mobility. And so what? We... If we, if we push for the 100% clean uh, mobility, then we might cannibalize it. But we need to do it because we know it will happen. And so it's a, it's a, a daily challenge to do it. Uh, another, another point also, we strongly believe that leveraging through scale is also helping. Because if, and that's also an advantage of being a, a large international mm -hmm. group, that if we, if we want to do it, if we want to deploy it, we can deploy it worldwide. And so that's a law also to have a better engagement and co-creation with suppliers, with different types of customers, with territories, and that allows to go uh, also with, uh, with uh, startups uh, to, uh, to do it. Mm. It's a dilemma that's not going to go away, I mean, clearly. But given the distance we need to travel and the speed at which we need to travel, it feels like I wish we could believe in the philosophy of the third, which I believe in, which is, you know, when I was a funder, you, you knew a third of what you invested in is not going to go anywhere. But actually, there's richness in what comes out of that. You have a third which you know are going to kind of make it with a little bit of support and to move into the market. And you've got a third which you know are bang on that will get to marketplace with very limited support. But in that mix, there's a kind of magic that can take place in terms of ideas and development, but it takes um, the ability for someone to be quite confident, either a government or a company, to actually accept a percentage failure uh, in the return on your investment. And there are different levers, whether you're private or you're public. However, Patrick, very quickly, if you want to come yeah. back, then I want to open it up to these very, very patient audience. Yeah, I just wanted engaged. to make an, another point about something we don't do especially well in, in Europe, which I think we need to do better, and that is managing the transition from universities and the research world to commercial businesses. We tend to see that a bit of as a tug of war. When we discuss our funding, it's, you know, we shouldn't do investment instruments at the expense of fundamental research. Um, and, and we don't, I think, create always the conditions which help good people coming out of universities mm -hmm. having spin-offs and making successful companies. Absolutely. So that's an area we should also concentrate on. And hopefully your innovation council will look at how do, you, how do you really join up the dots from public to private and to market in interesting ways. Okay, colleagues, I'm going to open up to you. I just want to say that you'll have noticed we've got three speakers rather than four. Um, our speaker from Sonnen unfortunately had a really important engagement with the German government and therefore didn't likely turn us down, but obviously it was a very important call he had to take, so he wasn't able to be here with us um, uh, but, uh, today. But, you know, we have our three here. I want to open up to you. Um, what's on your mind? If you were reflecting on what you've heard so far, one might say there's a sense of pragmatic of pragmatic optimism, potentially, uh, with a sense of what the key barriers, uh, challenges and opportunities might be when you're dealing with 
the goal that we have, but also knowing that we've got a bureaucratic maze um, in terms of structure, funding, uh, and policy. So over to you. What are your, uh, what's on your mind in terms of thoughts, questions, issues from what you've heard so far? What I'd like you to say who you are, and I always say this, those of you who've been here in, in, with me moderating, is that no speeches uh, and no pleas, just simply a question or a comment, and say who your question is targeted towards. So uh, over to you. Gentlemen here. Speak, uh, a microphone's on its way to you. Yes, hello. I'm Paul Eakins, and I'm Deputy Director of the UK Energy Research Centre, and I work at University College London. Um, my question is to our two private sector speakers, because I think we've only very much heard part of the story of innovation that we need to hear, and I'd like to hear from them what they would like with regard to regulation, because I think very few people realise just how sophisticated a system, an electricity system is. It has to balance every second of the day, and changing from centralised thermal plant to intermittent renewable plant with electromobility on top is quite an ask. Obviously, I, I know what the European Commission is trying to do with the Energy Union, and I'd be interested for Patrick to comment on that, but I'd really like to hear from Engie as to, uh, you know, what's your ask on the Energy Union, the regulatory system, the reforms that will need to take place in order for the lights to continue to go on when we press the switch? Thank you for that very good question. Can I just add to that? Because I think, I mean, you've painted a very effective uh, uh, narrative about what the challenge is. Added to that is digital, because actually digital is going to really fundamentally, with sensors and everything else, in terms of the data, and you've referred to it. So given that context, what's your view, Caroline? I'm not a specialist in regulation. Uh, I've worked uh, a bit on it, and uh, indeed, while developing business, it's a daily hurdle. But on the other hand, it's also uh, very much needed to be able to support. And that's why, um, in our new thinking, we also need think system. And we don't think each of the parts separately, like electric mobility in one side, storage in, other, in another part, because we are very much convinced that by linking them together and looking at different um, size of system is, uh, is really key. And that's also uh, the trends towards decentralization where actually the optimizing mechanism of the network will be, go, will, will be much downer into uh, closer to the end user uh, because end user also needs to be educated in this new world. Uh, changing habits doesn't happen uh, very quickly. But on the other end, it happens very quickly. Um, I'm driving an electric car since uh, earlier uh, this year. At the beginning, um, you, you, you don't realize what is happening. It's very fun, but at the end of the day, you need to go to the bakery. Oh, I don't have power anymore. So it happens once, but not twice. <laughs> and so you, you change your habits, and, and by doing that, you become also actor of this energy system. And I think that's something very important. And while discussing with industrial customers, it's also uh, something we see happening more and more. And by having a closer link between industries, customers, uh, and, and government and regulation, I think we will also close the gap and understand each other better on how to design this future, this future uh, world, energy world uh, we are all aiming at. So part of what you're saying is actually bringing the consumers 
in the reg journey for regulation and making regulation better, which is, I think is important. Co-production is really, really key. But whether that's possible is, let's, let's hope. Let's, let, let's still vision. Do you want to say something just very, very briefly? And I want to come back to you, sir. Um, so I'm just preparing you for a question. Actually, you are talking about regulation, and I think that we really, this is the first key point for making this, transition, uh, this energy transition happening. Uh, we need to have a really clear pricing uh, f from the market because today uh, energy price are just regulation of, uh, for energy price are very different country from country. So uh, I know that uh, in France I spent months to just to learn how it was working. Uh, probably I'm speaking English and, and Spanish, so I did the same. But for example, I'm not speaking German. So how, how can I just make a technology, storage technology from the market, from Germany market? It's quite impossible. So I think that we, we need to have a really, uh, if, if some, if uh, maybe European Commission, <laughs> sorry for that, um, if, if, if somebody just um, try, can just make clear signal of what uh, price of energy will be in five years or in ten years. Of course, nobody knows this. But um, if you say that, uh, that um, the, for example, that the price energy will be uh, two, two, 200 euro per megawatt hours, uh, lots of uh, storage technology can just go and enter the market because you have a clear signal. So you can have funds for making the industrialization. And uh, so the second option could be to have incentives, but this is, uh, of course, okay. uh, really difficult to, All right. to, to make. Very briefly, Paul, what's, what's, your, what's your view in kind of one sentence? What would you like, given you asked that question from regulation? Well, it, this sounds odd coming from um, a, a Brit. But, uh, that's um, why I asked you. I, I, knew I, want, it would do. I, I would like uh, greater integration. I think uh, the energy union is... There you have it. The energy union is absolutely critical. And the major problems it has to sort out, and there are just as much problems in the UK, are the, the thing that Caroline mentioned, which is uh, zero marginal cost, mm. which is playing havoc in electricity markets, and the increasing decentralization of energy generation, because that is going to be competitive across wide swathes of Europe and consumers are just going to do it. And at the moment, we don't have an electricity system that can absorb that and Indeed. absorb the kind of products that uh, this lady here is working mm. on. So the greater integrated market is what we need, actually. Absolutely. So An integrated market is essential. Have a word with Teresa, would you, mm -hmm. on yes. your way back well, home. Um, those gentlemen there at the back there, can I encourage the women in the audience, please, to also raise your hands? That would be really helpful. Because these conversations always <laughs> are dominated by men, despite our panel. No, you're That's not to put you on the spot, my friend, at all. At all, no, I don't take it as is. <laughs> William Garcia with the uh, Chemical Industry Federation, CEFIC. Um, this debate is about um, um, producing electricity, but um, I would very much like also to point to efficiency. That is the, uh, the second pillar of the, uh, the clean energy package, which we, uh, we are delighted to, to have as an industry player in Europe, so um, we shouldn't throw efficiency too much away, uh, you know, like uh, throwing the, uh, the baby with the, uh, the bathwater. Um, efficiency plays a, a significant role in that, uh, in that sense uh, for the industry itself, but also uh, for energy carriers, uh, distributors, transport of electricity. Now, that's one point. The second is um, we have made our own assessment on um, how to take the chemical industry uh, to carbon neutrality by 2050, 2060, so forward-looking. One of the big limiting factors is actually access to uh, abundant and cheap re renewable electricity. 
Um, strange to, uh, to hear a, uh, a uh, chemical representation here talking about electricity, but fact is, um, if we do not have access to abundant and cheap renewable electricity by then, we would be very much dependent on fossil fuels, on mm. fossil feedstocks. And we, we know society is asking for something else, and we are working on models as we speak within the industry. However, the limiting factor is there. So my question to um, our panelists, in particular for the, uh, to the commission, is what to speed up, what to do to speed it up, to speed the penetration of renewables into the European market. If we take the current tra trajectory of 30% uh, as proposed, it's not enough. Give you one example in our study. Mm -hmm. um, if we were to turn six chemicals from the large volume chemicals, uh, starting from fertilizers to BTX to, um, uh, say, um, uh, propylene, ethylene, uh, so olefins and, um, and um, uh, aromatics uh, into uh, the green side, uh, we would actually, in the base case, absorb 30% of the available renewable electricity by 2050, 30% only for six chemicals. Uh, and that's only touching base on 60% of the emissions uh, of CO2 of the industry by then. Right, so the okay. um, question is how to speed it up. And I have another one, but for more for SMEs and efficiency. All right, we'll come back. But also, do you already have a view about how to speed it up, given you're asking that question? Um, if you do yes, very briefly. We, we do, but I would like first to, to hear Ask from the commission. From okay, fine. Answer. Okay, Patrick, do you want to address that one? Well, I mean, I think we are doing what we think we can. Um, some of the, the things that we discussed internally when we were preparing the communication I mentioned earlier on accelerating clean energy uh, innovation... Um, were some of the things that have been present in this debate. I mean, for example, do the existing systems of incentives and um, subsidies for the deployment of the existing um, clean energy, uh, sorry, renewable technologies actually divert resources that we could be better using to develop new generation of renewables? Or even more controversial... Do we think that the various forms of hidden or not so hidden subsidies for traditional fossil fuels are also distorting in the market in ways which prevent uh, us from having the funding or the commercial sort of logic for developing the sort of new new technologies that, that we need? But, but, you know, those sort of slightly um, negative thoughts... I think we have to set against the pace of innovation. I was last night at an, an exhibition of uh, photographs of uh, machines that are now being developed at a sort of demonstration level for energy from oceans. And they were all very proud of showing these big machines with yellow paint and all this stuff. Um, but what they were saying was, well, if they tried to hold this same exhibition a year ago, it wouldn't have been there. They'd have had sort of computer graphics and imagined designs. But here they were doing what they called putting steel in the water. And that, you know, the pace of the, uh, of the potential change is huge. And what we've seen in many other sectors, I mean, whether it's, the, you know, the cost of PV or the wind, you know, I mean, and so, I mean, I think that the, that the potential for things to move very quickly is there. Uh, and the challenge for us as policymakers is to avoid either regulatory 
obstacles or sort of distortions in the market um, which can make that more difficult. But one of the other things that, I, you know, going back to you, I mean, someone mentioned energy efficiency, I think it was you. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had a discussion in the preparation of our communication. Should we stop funding uh, investment into the combustion engine? Um, and, you know, there was a big debate. You know, lots of services had views on that. But in the end, of course, we concluded that probably that wasn't the way to go because um, the combustion engine, whether we like it or not, is here for the foreseeable future. And there is still a considerable potential to make combustion engines a lot cleaner and a lot more efficient. And that that is also something which we <coughs> should be uh, looking at. So, Thank you. Thank you very much. Stady there at the back. Thank you. And yourself. Uh, Ilse Fari from the uh, Belgian Federation of Chemical Industry. I um, would like to refer to the start of the, of the meeting when you mentioned a few directions for innovation and uh, the set plan. I uh, wrote them down and I noticed that they are all in the field of uh, electricity or mainly. Um, I was wondering if there's also directions um, that you can share with us on the other vectors, the energy vectors, the heat, uh, transport, uh, also energy for feedstock, which is very important for the chemical industry. Okay, all right. I'm going to take another one before I take it to the panel. Thank you for that. So what, you know, what are the other uh, you know, routes um, that we're pursuing other than you know, just the one that you referred to? But are there? I'm sure there are, but we'll, Patrick will come back to you and yourself here. Hi, I'm uh, Christine Bedzinia from the German Marshall Fund. I'm a senior fellow, and I work on the intersection of digital technologies and on energy technologies. And my question is to Angie and as well to, uh, to the two Carolines, a bit about the, uh, about the sectors, right? Because we not only have transformation within Engie, but we also have true transformation of what is an energy company versus mm. what is a tech company. So as you are having this fight uh, in the central office between the disruptive technologies and the old technologies, do you also feel that you are competing ever more with a Google uh, or, I don't know, an Amazon, uh, a completely different kind of company uh, in the energy sector right now? To me, uh, it does seem as though the, the roles of these companies are shifting right now. And if you are competing, what is the advantage of an NG and a traditional energy company in undergoing this transformation as opposed to a different sector? And so for a startup perspective, the question is, as you are looking to partner, uh, not only with funding, but really to launch and to bring your technologies to scale, what are the advantages of partnering with traditional energy actors versus uh, tech actors who are now entering the field? Thank you. I'm going to start with that, if I may. So are you going through an identity crisis? Yes and no, because um, indeed um, the energy sector is completely transforming, but technology has always been at the core of energy uh, some, some decades ago already, and so it's continuing. It's just that the pace at which, at which it is changing is accelerating every day, and we are also changing the way we, uh, we handle technology uh, within the company. So we have recently created uh, what we call the Engie Fab, which is aiming at developing those disruptive technology platform to make it available to all customers worldwide. We have also created our digital factory, where we make digital available to, uh, to all our employees and colleagues to be able to develop those new offers, etc. And indeed, there are new competitors, but 
everyone became competitors, like our customer producing themselves energy. But on the other end, everyone is becoming also co-creator of this new solution. So it's just a question of uh, how you're taking it the other way around, and by doing it together and teaming up, um, it, it, will, uh, it will help. And um, even if uh, the energy tr sector is going completely upside down, it remains something very complex, technical, and not anyone can just jump in and uh, revolutionize uh, everything. I mean, it will, uh, it's happening, but uh, there are some fundamental also on the infrastructure where we also uh, team up with others uh, instead of just doing it alone. And, and indeed, I mean, uh, the strategy of Engie, uh, it's now to uh, become one of the leaders of the energy transition, and it's completely opened up and uh, with a core role of uh, technology and digital within the company. Mm -hmm. so you've embraced the future in a meaningful way, but there's politics at heart of that, I'm sure, that we will have to overcome. Uh, Karen, from your perspective, um, the question was obviously, st it's better to stay with a traditional uh, uh, you know, sector, uh, uh, you know, a company, versus someone that's kind of morphing with technology at its heart. What's, what's your experience? What would you um, prefer? I think the, the two goes together, actually. Um, we are, but um, the, we, 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 cannot for, we cannot just uh, rely on, uh, on, on software tools because energy transition will not happen only on software. We, we, need, we need hardware, we need batteries, we need storage system, we, ne we need, uh, we need uh, solar panels for producing energies. So, um, and this is the thing that uh, tech companies are always are often just forget, they forget this often because, uh, for example, I will take the example of Nest uh, from Google. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's just uh, the, the good example that shows that software needs is hardware's device. And so um, for us, we are uh, working with both, actually. We are working with, uh, with Engie on this uh, because we need infrastructure, we need to to, to make the change from decentralized into to more centralized uh, energy system. And we are working also with uh, uh, startups uh, that, may, that are making this kind of um, uh, management for buildings, uh, for just uh, uh, knowing what, uh, how the sun will produce today and tomorrow, uh, how you, you will consume in your building, and uh, just to, to make it work because uh, we need software for making, uh, for just matching what the sun or the wind will produce uh, with our energy needs. Okay, thank you. Patrick, set plan. Is there diversity in what you're investing in and looking at? Well, I think that is the answer. The set plan remains fully valid and covers the full spectrum of uh, energy technologies, and we remain. Uh, absolutely committed to that and we've made a huge amount of progress in cooperation with member states and with industry representatives in sort of establishing you know, different ways forward in different areas. I also think, I want, maybe I, I mean in my very brief summary, maybe I was a little bit too quick, um, but even in the four things that I mentioned, I mean storage is not just about batteries, it's not just about storage of electricity and we deliberately left our communication broad about storage precisely to you know, create some space for that. Um, and uh, when we're talking about heating and cooling of buildings, of course, you know, electricity can be a big part of that, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not necessary. Um, so you know, I think that we, we remain um, uh, pretty sort of broad in our, in our approach. But the purpose of the communication was 
in, deliberately to try and give a, a sort of clear sense of direction on some of the areas where we think um, you know, the sort of future innovation space needs to go, um, and that, that, that's why we highlighted those things. Okay, thank you. So we've covered a number of particular areas that are significant in this space. Anybody here that feels that their kind of their particular issue or their pet project or the pet issue hasn't been raised? I will give you another go, but I, I want to make, make it open for others to also contribute. Okay, we have two gentlemen. Gentlemen here. Jean-Michel Glachamp from School of Regulation. Very particular issue. Uh, Caroline, you did quote um, hydrogen as a new tsunami coming in the energy sector. I'm 67 years old. I thought it was a corpse and not a tsunami. You thought it was a? I thought it was a, a corpse. corpse. A dead body rather than a tsunami. Dead body. <laughs> Our view on that is that since um, green energy is getting cheaper and cheaper, competitive, then you can also produce hydrogen through electrolysis, and so you have green hydrogen, and that's changing completely uh, the rule of the game. Um, if why? Because, I mean, if you have um, green hydrogen that is competitive, then actually um, you, have, you have this hydrogen, it's green, and we want to go for a greener world. So you can, have, uh, uh, you can use for the chemical industry, uh, for fertilizer, you could use green hydrogen. If it's competitive, then it's CO2-free, and you have a nice story. I mean, you produce renewable to have green food at the end of the story. Um, you can do you could you could do that in some uh, in some very sunny regions where uh, and that's the source of Europe, for example, could produce their uh, cheap renewables that can be transformed in cheap green uh, hydrogen that can be used in the industry can also be used in the mobility and as a complement to electric mobility, and that's why we think that um, that hydrogen is really complementary. It also allows you to be able to store uh, energy over a long period so that you can manage the interseasonability between, uh, between summer and winter. You can also transport it over long distances so that you could supply, um, supply uh, regions that, is, that are lacking a bit renewable energy. Of course, all technologies are not yet there, for example, for the long-distance tr long transportation, but that's, according to us, really a key new element in the, in the energy world uh, of tomorrow. I can, I can see. Okay. This debate's not going to go away, because I can see from the audience reaction. People are going, yeah, right. Um, it's just more economical and cheaper. But um, perhaps you're just ahead of the intelligence curve, and you've found the opportunity to kind of drive the market. But I think this debate is not going to go away. But as you say, if there are renewables and alternatives that are green, uh, why not use them? But the debate isn't going to go away for sure, and not everyone's going to be convinced. Gentlemen there. <clears throat> Uh, Stefan Verhoten from uh, DG Klima. I'm advisor in DG Klima on innovation. From DG Klima. Ah. I have a question to the two uh, representatives of the private sector. Mm -hmm. uh, if you would see uh, um, substantial penetration of electromobility in the next years, do you think that um, vehicle-to-grid technology and applications would uh, quickly appear, or do you think that's more longer term on the horizon? 
people are talking about providing grid services uh, in the balancing markets, frequency regulation. Is that on the horizon or is it more for the long term? Can you just repeat that very briefly because I have it difficult to hear that. So your question is? Vehicle to, if we have more electromobility, mm -hmm. will vehicle-to-grid technology emerge quickly mm -hmm. as a service to the grid or not? Okay. What's your view? Part of the technology is already there. We mm -hmm. can already consider that... Uh, that actually your, your electric vehicle, it's a battery that you can transport from one place to the other. Uh, for the time being, it's only used uh, to optimize maybe locally in some buildings uh, the use of, of the energy. But when uh, you will have some kind of energy communities combining their energy uh, consumption, uh, combining also the storage of the energy, it will, it will act more and more massively. It's also a question of, of regulation there to be able to, uh, to support it or to allow it even, because uh, so sometimes it's even not allowed. But most of the technologies are, are there, according to me. It's a question of integrating into the system and making the entire system working. Well, some pilots already exist, uh, and so for me, Basic technologies exist, and maybe it's a bit of a contradiction, but the basic technologies exist for most of what we want to do. The question is integrating it, developing mm -hmm. it, and going down into the, the cost curve. Um. Do you want to add anything to this, Caroline? Um, yes, uh, I agree with, uh, with you, Caroline, that uh, electric technology are already here, electric vehicles. But uh, I think that if uh, in a few years uh, most of the people are just buying electric cars, we will have a huge, uh, we will have a huge problem in just to, to, to have the power to, to charge them. Uh, so that's why I think we, we need to, to add uh, inside of the, of the global consumption uh, this, uh, this power that we, we will be needed to, to plug vehicles. Uh, and with, uh, soft, with, um, uh, with uh, strategic, uh, with strategic um, uh, storage uh, for, of the energy that, from, uh, that is going from the sun, uh, or, or strategic, with strategic sto storage of the energies from grid, for example, when, uh, when prices are low, uh, you will be able to, to charge uh, most of the vehicles that you want. It's just a matter of uh, infrastructure and, and software. Thank you. We have time for one more. So I'm sorry. I'm not going to give you a second bite at the cherry. I'm just going to make sure we've got diversity from, from the different people in the audience. So last question to you. My name is uh, Freddy van Bogget. I'm uh, from KBC Bank. And perhaps it's a good sign that there is a banker in the room. Indeed, because, uh, absolutely. I was going to say, great. Because when class. it's about funding, um, uh, when we have a, a decent business model, we are definitely there to fund that business model. That's one thing. But the thing we underestimate, I guess, is the technological evolution going on. Mm -hmm. uh, Caroline referred to the New York case in the early uh, 20th century. And, of course, I think things will get much, much faster than in that time. Because not only uh, e-mobility is there, but also autonomous e-mobility is there. I guess there will be a lot uh, cars off the road by 2015, some, uh, 2025, I guess. So the problem of energy uh, production in order to feed this fleet of electric vehicles will be perhaps uh, a, a bit less than today. And not only a bit, but a, a big part less than today. Um, so I guess that um, 
the technological exponential curve will help us to overcome this problem. And I'm very optimistic in that. Uh, and I think what we do, for instance, in the Horizon 2020 program on uh, smart districts and uh, things like that is hopeful. And uh, the banking sector is, I guess, ready to, to fund uh, fundable projects. So when the business model is there and the technology is okay, there is no lack of money for that. Sure. And I, there is that thing about the money's there, but there's also, if you want to work in an integrated market, banks almost need to also collaborate and create a financial pipeline. What's your, if I can pose a question to you, your sense of risk appetite um, in terms of putting in money for seed capital, do you do that at KBC? Well, seed, seed capital and, and this large-scale problem is, I think, not... Uh, the, the good thing to approach it. When we see, for instance, companies like Engie and other major players, they have technology readiness level 7, 8, and even 9 in place in order to make this business as usual. We are not, in, I think, in the phase anymore of seed capital. Of course, startups are important in order to fire up the market and the major players. But this is a large-scale problem, and mm -hmm. we should uh, face it with large-scale solutions, and it must go quick. So when the technology is there, and the business model is there, and the system integration is there, I guess money <laughs> will be available, and then the risk appetite of bankers, who are now sitting down and uh, asking them, what is this all about? Because for them, it's not business as usual. Uh, for when it's business as usual for bankers, then things will, uh, will move on fast. And one of the hopeful sure. things we have seen now, in, in, I think it was last week when Apple uh, launched this uh, $1 billion um, green bond program in order to, to fire up their own uh, sustainability on, on energy, they, they gave a very important sig signal to the world because mm -hmm. they don't need to issue a bond program because they are sitting on a cash pile which is uh, larger than the combined cash reserves of the European Euro, uh, the Euro countries. But they do it in order to inform the public, in order to give the public the, the opportunity to join in that, uh, in that uh, operation and also to say to the administration in the United States, we don't need you to make this happen. Because when you don't uh, do it, we will do it, mm -hmm. and we will do it fast. Because now uh, Apple is an energy producer because they produce more than they use, which is good. Absolutely. Um, and points well made. I suppose my, my, my response to you in terms of seed capital is that I think in any phase of development or revolution or transformation, you always have to keep an eye on the ecology that gets you to the point that you are. And that ecology requires people to be able to create the opportunity for people to see, succeed and fail and learn. And it, once we take our eye off that and move into the middle and scale, we then lose the opportunity to learn from where we've come from to a certain extent. But I, your point is well made. But my, my concern is about whether the financial pipeline across Europe will work to achieve what you're, what you're describing. Last kind of final comments from each of you, very briefly. Any, you don't have to, but if there's any parting thoughts you want to share, please feel free to. I'll start with you, Caroline. Doesn't have to be in response to that, any particular point that you would like to make? No? Great, okay, Patrick. Well, I think this is a very uh, rich discussion and I think that it underlines the thing which for me is most important is that finding effective ways of getting 
the private and the public sectors to work together in clean energy innovation mm. is vital, uh, but that in Europe we have uh, huge strengths to draw on and with this sort of global leadership of the debate that we are now occupying, an opportunity really to make progress. So I'm optimistic. Hmm? Caroline? Actually, maybe to conclude, um, the cheaper and the greener energy is the one we don't consume. So that's also one uh, key levers uh, we have. And so, and again, going for co-creation, collaboration between the different sectors will move us uh, forward quicker and faster. Thank you. So that's it, colleagues. I want to take you to, the, just as a parting shot, to the view of citizens. We have a debating platform called Debating Europe, where over 1.2 million unit users engage in a debate with us on our platform on a whole range of issues. And part of our you know, work on SHAPE, uh, Horizon 2020 programme, we launched a particular debate around this particular subject matter. And we have a constant stream of discussions around climate change. I just want to share with you three points of view from um, citizens from across Europe and elsewhere. So Bobby, Bobby Dosha from Bulgaria said, smart houses may help you to save on energy, but I expect it will take a long time. It's similar to electric cars. You pay twice the price and have to wait a long time before you see the financial environmental results. Larry from the UK um, says, does Europe have the right system of incentives in terms of tax subsidies uh, and breaks for the development and integration of a smart energy technology for the future? And finally, a question of trust from Kohler from Switzerland. The Volkswagen emissions scandal damaged public trust. How can business overcome public cynicism about their role in the fight against climate change? So those are the views of three citizens that I, I suppose are replicated across Europe in different ways, and I think we've debated some of those issues. It's not going to go away because actually, as we know, behaviour change um, and perception are key to this agenda, and we have to work really hard if we are going to really uh, sustain behaviour change and perceptions of trust as we move this agenda forward. Colleagues, thank you very much for being um, a good audience and uh, engaging with us. We, all good things have to move to a, another good thing. And at the back, we have some uh, drinks for you. Uh, so please do join us in uh, a cocktail reception at the back there. And thank you all very much. Let's, let's actually thank our speakers in the usual manner for, for stimulating a really good conversation and discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you all.